New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today encourages us to move beyond hand-me-down beliefs and religions. Instead, he invites us to co-create with spirit and follow a path of a direct experience of the sacred. Our collective plunge down this steep slope of progress has come at the cost of a deep, intuitive connection with nature and our authentic spiritual selves. This has resulted in a profound disenchantment of life. Today we'll be exploring a way to reclaim the wonder and hope that will give meaning to our lives and our world with our guest, Dr. Hank Wesselman. Hank Wesselman is a respected paleoanthropologist who has worked with noted anthropologists around the world, including Ethiopia, investigating the mystery of human origins in the Great Rift Valley. Besides his training and scientific work, he's a shamanic student, practitioner, and teacher now in the 30th year of his apprenticeship. He lives with his wife, Jill, in Hawaii. In addition to his scientific publications, his seven books on shamanism include The Spirit Walker Trilogy, Awakening to the Spirit World, co-authored with Sandra Ingerman, The Bowl of Light, Ancestral Wisdom from a Hawaiian Shaman, and The Re-Enchantment, A Shamanic Path to a Life of Wonder. Join us for the next hour as we explore the shamanist path and how to reclaim our wonder and hope for our world with our guest, Dr. Hank Wesselman. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Hank, welcome. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's a great pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you. It's my pleasure as well. Thank you for coming. I'd like to begin. I, I know your work is about following the shamanic path that can lead us to transformational spirituality. So who or what is a shaman? Well, you know, in the Western world, there's a lot of confusion, I think, between the kind of work that shamans do and the kind of work that medicine people do. And this confusion exists because every shaman is a medicine person, but not all medicine people are shamans. In fact, among the various indigenous tribal groups of people I've lived with across the years, it's been my discovery that most 
medicine people are not shamans, but they fulfill social roles more like those of priests in our organized religious traditions. What do I mean by this? Well, they tend to serve their communities as ceremonial leaders, as ritual leaders, conducting ceremony and ritual throughout the year. And this is not to diminish the work that they do, because they hold the equilibrium, both the physical and metaphysical equilibrium of their communities in their capable hands. And they may have great knowledge of the healing arts. So they're important. They're not, you're they're not dismissing them. But the medicine person does their main work in this world. Like whereas, the world of the physical. The physical world. Uh-huh. Whereas the shaman works in the other worlds, in the spirit worlds. Technically, a shaman is an individual who discovers, sometimes in childhood, sometimes in adulthood, that they have the ability to alter their consciousness, to go into trance very easily. And when they do this, they literally re-geography their awareness away from the physical world into a transpersonal world, which the indigenous people call the spirit world or the other world. And the first thing the shamanic neophyte or acolyte discovers is that this world is inhabited. It's inhabited by transpersonal forces that the traditional people call spirits. And these include, you know, the spirits of elementals, the spirits of nature, the spirits of animals, the spirits of plants, the spirits of the dead, the spirits of ancestors, as well as those higher organizing intelligences that many people call angels. Now, through relationship with these transpersonal forces, shamans are able to do various things, initially on behalf of themselves, and then increasingly on behalf of others. The shaman is really a public servant. It's not, shamanism is not primarily a method for self-development, although it can be used like that in the beginning. It's really a service occupation in which the shaman is in service to their community as a healer. And, you know, shamans do various things, and we could talk about that. But, you know, the shaman does their main work in the other world. And so I remember asking Michael Harner, who many people are familiar with, I remember asking him about 35 years ago, what are those features that reveal somebody to be an authentic shaman? And he got right to the point. You know, he said, first of all, do they journey to other worlds? Secondly, do they have relationships with spirits? And thirdly, do they perform miracles? Mm. Now, this last statement is, is sometimes problematic for people, But let me just say that over the 25 years I've been teaching, I have watched, astonished, as non-tribal Western people can access this altered state of consciousness quite easily. I send them off with a set of coordinates without telling them what to see. This is not about guided visualization. And then they return 15 or 20 minutes later with accounts that would pass muster at any aboriginal campfire. And in terms of miracles... I've been watching healing go on in these workshops, as I've said, all the time I've been teaching. And I've watched people with very serious afflictions come to these workshops for healing. And often, not always, but often, these afflictions just go away. I'm not talking about that stiff tennis elbow or that, you know, torn shoulder joint. I'm talking about illnesses like cancer 
and Crohn's disease and lupus and multiple sclerosis. Although I'll have to say, multiple sclerosis is very, very hard. Uh, I believe it can be stopped from advancing. But once it's demyelinized those upper motor uh, root neurons, it's very difficult to remyelinize them again. But I think it can be halted, and I've watched this happen among people who've come to the workshops. So I could, I could give you examples of these if you wish, but well, we could just also press on because there's a lot to talk about. Uh, there, there's much to talk about, and we could get really hung up on the miracles. And I, I you know, I'm, I don't want to go into that too much because I think that really the purpose of the book is really about creating a new cultural mythos. I mean, that's the big overriding. I mean, there are individual needs that we have, but there is also a planetary need that we have. And and I want to know your advice or your view of how we can do that. And first of all, I'd love for our listeners to know something about you, Hank, and going back into a little bit of your early experiences where you... You, you use the word re-enchantment, the re-enchantment. It's the title of your book. And that's such a powerful image and idea to re-enchant. And you go back, you, you begin by telling us the story of your first memory of being enchanted. And it was when you were, what, three or four years old in a stroller. Can you tell, tell us? That's true. That's a, that's a very uh, strong memory for me. My family and I lived in an apartment on the Upper East Side of New York, so we had access to Central Park. And my mother, or my au pair, used to take me to the park almost every day, unless the weather was inclement. And I remember when I was about three or four years old, maybe five, uh, I had looked up at the trees, and I had this interesting insight. I realized that the trees were living beings my, like myself, but they were different. And then I looked at the pigeons bobbing and cooing and mobbing each other for the breadcrumbs my mother was spreading out for them on the sidewalk, and they were also living beings like myself, but they were different. And then there were the squirrels, these rather hyper-furry ambassadors, And I remember one day offering a peanut to a squirrel who perched on the side of my stroller. And for one long moment, this squirrel looked deeply into my eyes. And I was enchanted. I was enchanted by none other than Mother Nature herself. Then there was the zoo. There's a zoo in Central Park, and I went there often with my mother and the memories of that time and the imagery and the smells and the sounds are still with me to this day. And um, I remember one day seeing an extraordinary creature in a cage. It was one of the most beautiful creatures I'd ever seen. It was a leopard. And I didn't know what leopards were, but I watched this leopard pacing in ever-narrowing circles in its cage. And I had another deep insight that within this graceful, spotted body, there was a great will that was imprisoned. And with that awareness, something happened. And suddenly I was transported. It was like being in a dream, although I was very much awake. It was like being in a dream, and I found myself in a place of blueness. It was blue. 
And the leopard was there, and there were no bars between us. And the leopard looked deeply into my soul with that green gaze. And something happened. Now, what happened eludes me today. I reach for it, and I cannot recapture it. But the leopard became my kind of imaginary childhood friend. It wouldn't come in the apartment building, of course. What I didn't realize was that leopards like to stick to cover. They're covert operators, and they're ambush hunters. But when I went to the park, the leopard was always there, and we would have these inner adventures together, kind of like Calvin and Hobbes. You remember that wonderful— Oh, I love that cartoon. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Hobbes was a tiger. Well, mine was a leopard. And, you know, as I grew up, of course, the magic and the mystery began to fade. They began to fade. And by the time I was an adolescent, I was fascinated with the female of the species, as Zorba the Greek described them. <laughs> I loved Cousin Zaukas' writings. He's one of my faves. And um, the mystery withdrew. The magic withdrew. And then, one day in Africa, when I was on expedition with a research team in southwestern Ethiopia, I began to have these very strange experiences. During the daytime, when I was very much awake, they were like dreams, but waking dreams. And I remember one that was very important. I think it was in 1972. We're gonna. I want you to complete that story. I don't want to interrupt it, so I, I want to have you hold it. And, and remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Hank Wesselin, and he is the author of The Reenchantment, A Shamanic Path to a Life of Wonder. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, sharedwisdom.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Hank Wesselman, and he's the author of The Reenchantment, A Shamanic Path to a Life of Wonder. And Hank, you were just about to tell us this experience you had as here you are, a paleoanthropologist in Africa, Ethiopia, and it's daytime, and suddenly, almost unbidden by your, I mean, you weren't thinking about it, you weren't concentrating on it, but you had an experience. Well, I was working with three African men. I was in a safari camp, by the way. We were 600 miles from the nearest cold beer or hot bath, and we would be out there for three months at a time. 
doing survey work in these sedimentary deposits along the lower Omo River, which flows into Lake Turkana to the south and drains the Ethiopian highlands to the north. We had 50 people in the camp, scientific people, we had African people, and on this particular day I was excavating a site which was a little over 3 million years old, from which the fossilized remains of animals have, were being recovered, crocodiles and fish and turtles and uh, buffaloes and antelopes and carnivores and so forth and so on, including the fossilized remains of very early humans still in the process of becoming human. They were more like proto-humans. So I was excavating this site, and I'd had this experience for several days in a row where I suddenly became aware of the fact that I was being watched by something. Now, this is a kind of eerie experience on the one hand, and when you're in Africa, maybe a hundred yards or more from your Land Rover, there are lions, and there are leopards, and there are hyenas, and there are buffalo, and they're all dangerous. So this was concern-making, to say the least. Well, on this particular day, we were preparing to go back to camp for lunch. Probably the temperature was hovering around 110 degrees, maybe 115, and the two African men who were Wakamba, the Kambas are a tribe from Kenya. Their names were Mathoka and Kambulu. They were loading the equipment back into the Land Rover. But the third African was a man from that region, the Dusnich tribe, that the uh, Kenyans call the Marile. This man was a shaman. His name was Loki Riakwanga, but everybody called him Otiko. Otiko spoke six languages, but none of them was English, and I didn't speak any of the languages he spoke, although I could manage a little Swahili. And on this particular day, this shaman was watching me with some intensity. And as I felt this feeling of being watched, I wondered if it was coming from him. But as I stood up and I dusted myself off, I watched his eyes slide to my left, and my eyes followed him and his gaze, and I saw something. It was big, and it was about, it was in the air. It was, it was above the ground, it seemed, and it seemed to have spots or dots. And as I looked directly at it, it's though whatever it was stepped through a rip in the fabric of the air and then zipped it closed from the other side, leaving a momentary wrinkle that straightened out and then was gone. Well, I blinked and I looked at this, and I thought to myself, maybe it's time to go back to Nairobi and have a beer, <laughs> you know? But, you know, in this case, I turned and looked at the shaman, and he was watching me again. And I suddenly knew that he'd seen it, and he knew that I'd seen it, and he knew that I knew that he'd seen it. <laughs> and so I looked at him, and I said to him in Swahili, Atiko, what was that? And he turned and he pointed at directly where it had been in the air, and said a single word in Swahili. He said the word, Shaitani. Shaitani is the word for spirit. But in those days, I worshipped solely at the altar of science. I wasn't interested in spirits. I wasn't interested in the soul. And I just sort of took it in and made notes to myself in my journal and then kind of let it go. But it was the onset of a number of strange things that happened. You know, I could share one more, which is a, a very poignant memory. We used to hunt uh, every Tuesday and Saturday for meat for the camp, because we were 50 people in the field. 
and there were large herds of gazelles, grass gazelles, that populated the savanna grasslands around the camp. And so one afternoon, the director of the expedition, a professor from Berkeley named F. Clark Howell, he and I and a third, none other than Don Johansson, the guy who would eventually find Lucy. In those days, he was still a grad student like, I'm, like myself. And Lucy was like the ancient bones of one of the early humanoids. Yeah, she's right. one of the famous ones. Yeah. Lucy. Yeah. Uh, three and a half million years old, roughly mm-hmm. speaking. Mm-hmm. He would find Lucy two years after this experience. Well, the three of us went out hunting, and the hunt was successful. And on our way back to camp, with a gazelle and several guinea fowl in the back, we were driving across what's called a clay pan. A clay pan during the rainy season is filled with water, but during the dry season it's dry. And this clay pan was several miles across with this fringing, dark, rather leafless, um, scrubby acacia woodlands around the border. And as we're driving across the clay pan, I saw this thing ahead of us that looked like a gourd, which was drying in the sun. And as we passed the gourd, suddenly my professor looked at me and reached down and turned the car off. As the car drifted to a stop, we got out and we walked back. And there on the surface of the pan was a human cranium. And it was a fairly fresh one with the muscles still attached. And he reached down and picked it up. No jaw, just the cranium. And he shook it, and the brain was still inside, the desiccated, shrunken brain bumping around. And he pointed out where a cheekbone had been gnawed off and a mastoid process had been gnawed off, probably by jackals. And the eyes, of course, were gone, pecked out by uh, vultures. And he hypothesized that maybe a vulture had taken the skull up high and dropped it, hoping to break it open. Um... And then he passed it to me. And as I held the skull in my hands, my fingers traced the contours of the cranium, and I perceived it as female because the parietal prominences were strong, and her face was very delicate. Teeth were unwear. And as I gazed into the face, something happened. Now, what happened still eludes me to this day, but I suddenly heard this sound of rushing water And as I looked from side to side, it was still dry. There was no water there, but it sounded like rushing water. And then, abruptly, my consciousness seemed to expand dramatically. And I found myself in a situation where my hankness, my carefully cultivated scientific persona, uh, just simply evaporated, and it was gone. And I found myself in this place of vastness, It was a vast place filled with golden dots, both warm and and cool, both dark and light, and they were moving. And I was in this vastness, and in those moments I knew what the vastness knew, but Hank was completely gone. And abruptly, Don Johansson reached out and took the skull for me, and I was back. Mm. I was back. And where had I gone? That it was broken, like wherever you would... Suddenly, you're now back in this reality. It was broken. So you had a propensity for these things. You didn't really search it out, but but they happened to you. They just came upon you. And uh, I was interested in one other story that, that goes back 
to your childhood, but it brought it forward. Um, years later, you were doing a workshop with Michael Harner, who does shamanic traveling and journeying with people and through drumming and stuff like that. And and he had an exercise or process where you were paired up with Sandra Ingerman. And uh, you didn't have a lot of faith in this process at all, but, you know, all right, you'll try it. And something very profound happened when she called up something for you. Can you tell us what that was? Well, this this happened at the time I was finishing my doctoral dissertation, and I was very busy. But a friend so of my wife, so as a scientist, so to speak, you know, the I mean, scientist, materialist scientist, right? You got it. Yep. Well, a friend of my wife's called, and she said, "Listen, Hank, there's a there's an anthropologist coming to town. He's going to teach a weekend workshop on shamanism. You're going to love it." <laughs> and I wasn't so sure. I was busy. And frankly, the thought of spending the weekend with a bunch of flaky New Agers didn't exactly <laughs> thrill me. But you know, it was the memory of those experiences in Africa. They haunted me for years. This is 10 years later. Because you had just put them aside. You, they happened, but you never really followed through on them. That's right. I went to the workshop. I think that's the reason I went. And Arner had us do an exercise with a, with a partner in which we did a couple of journeys, and in each journey, one of us would journey on behalf of the other to find a helping spirit to be in relationship. And uh, I wasn't too sure about this, but I found myself partnered with this very beautiful young woman with long hair and dark eyes named Sandra Engerman. And I had no idea who she was. She was a grad student at the CIIS in San Francisco in counseling psychology. And so we paired up, and in the, in the journey that happened, I found myself lying on the floor next to this woman with the great Michael Horner blamming away on his drum. And it's dark. I think we were in a high school gymnasium, but I'm not sure now, so many years later. And in the midst of the journey, suddenly Sandra sat up next to me and looked at me with some intensity. And then she leaned over, and I remember her long hair drifting across my face, and she planted her mouth on my chest and blew into my heart. And something happened. I got pricklies all over. In Hawaii, we call that chicken skin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pricklies all over. And then she sat me up and blew into my head. And then she waited until the drumming was complete. And then she described what she had experienced. She had journeyed. That is, she had projected her conscious awareness into the lower world which is the dreaming of nature, the great dream world of nature. And there she'd encountered a being that said it was one of my old friends and wanted to come back into a relationship with me once again. And lo and behold, she then sits there and describes the leopard to me. I used to call him the leopard man because he would stand up on his back legs, kind of like a human being. He would sort of mimic what humans do, how they present themselves. And so I called him the leopard man, and she described him doing this in, in her vision. Now, this got my attention. I mean, nobody knew about the leopard man. I mean, nobody knew about the leopard man. You never and talked to your mother or anybody, nope, friends, nope, nothing. It was, it was a clandestine relationship. Yes. And this was the beginning of my re-enchantment, really, because my whole life changed after that. And it was like four or five years later, I found myself in Hawaii. 
and all the visions that make up the Spirit Walker trilogy began at that point. And the Leopard Man was one of the guys who facilitated that process. Thank you so much for sharing that story. So this really gives us the context of of your journey and where now, now 30 years later, <laughs> here you are. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Hank Wesselman, and he's the author of The Reenchantment, A Shamanic Path to a Life of Wonder. If you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, sharedwisdom.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Hank Wesselman, and he's the author of The Reenchantment, A Shamanic Path to a Life of Wonder. And Hank, I, I'd like to to have us talk about, I know that this is you're very passionate about this, uh, is that we are at a time and place in history that is needing an upgrade of our cultural mythos, of our story, of our, we, we need a revitalization of culture, of, of as you say, re-enchantment of culture. And maybe you can talk about why that's so and how we might participate in that revitalization. Revitalization is a very powerful word. Uh, anthropologists have a perception of what are often called revitalization movements among traditional people. One of the most well-known was the ghost dance religion of the 1890s. The ghost dance religion happened during a time in which the American Indian people had been subjected to genocide, and 95% of the native peoples of North, Central, and South America had been exterminated. And so the revitalization movement was a last desperate attempt to reinfuse their culture with meaning and wisdom so that they could survive the changes that were happening in their world. And in the case of the ghost dance, there was a northern Paiute prophet named Wovoka, and he had a near-death experience in which he was taken to the upper world. And there he entered a sacred lodge, and in the sacred lodge were ancestors, ancestral spirits. And they talked to him about what was going on in the world at that time, very much what's going on in our world today, where everything seems to be unraveling. In this case, it was for the Indians. And they gave him a sacred dance to bring back, a dance of many movements. And they told him that this dance was to revitalize and save Indian culture. They decided to take a hand in things, to try to save the Indians from extinction. And so he brought the dance back, and it became known as the Father Dance or the Prophet Dance or the Dream Dance, 
the name we know as the ghost dance because a crazy anthropologist named Mooney from the Smithsonian came out west. This is the 1890s, and he did the ghost dance. And the ghost dance, the purpose of the ghost dance was really a kind of people's divinatory shamanism in which not just the shaman was operating, but the whole community was involved. And the dance involved uh, curious movements, it involved songs, it involved symbols, and it had the effect of bringing the dancers into an altered state of consciousness when they would sort of collapse and begin to journey, begin to go into the other world. The purpose of the dance was to reach back into the past, to connect with deceased ancestors, because at that time, all the ancestors were gone, the elders were gone, all those who knew the prayers and the songs and the magic were gone. And the purpose of the dance was to bring that knowledge back, to bring back knowledge from the past to help revitalize Indian culture and spirituality. And in many ways, we're faced with a similar situation today because most of our mainstream religions are no longer largely relevant to our lives anymore. They're in desperate need of an upgrade. And so the reenchantment discusses this in some detail. The new cultural mythos, a mythos are the beliefs, values, and trends that are held closely by a culture. And they form a kind of, uh, a kind of mythic foundation upon which the culture rests. What's happening is that the old story about who we are, what we're doing here, and what this world is all about, that old story is no longer supporting us. It's no longer meaningful to us, and we're in need of a new story. And I, I just want to say that I, I know somewhere in, in your writings, you, you remind us uh, that here, you just told a story about a certain people's the uh, Native American peoples and also the Native Indigenous peoples of South America and all of these people have been just decimated. Their numbers have been decimated. But we're at a time where you you mentioned humans are on the endangered species list. You know, we talk about all these endangered species and we, we don't include ourselves, but but this is what we're facing. So this is why it's so important in this time that we look at what do we truly value? What is truly sacred to us? And, and you really are talking about reaching back into our past, reaching deep into the un, unseen worlds, the upper worlds, the lower worlds, just really pulling this information no it's not information but this what is it tell us what what are we trying to to do well it's really a new mosaic it's a new pattern about who we are where we fit into this whole thing and what this whole thing is really about it's really about walking the path of our destiny when you get right down to it i remember being in relationship with a hawaiian elder named Hale makua during the last eight years of his life. And, you know, that's what the Book of the Bowl of Light is about, our conversations and philosophical discussions. And I just want to remind our listeners, we have a wonderful uh, conversation and dialogue 
with you and Michael Toms about that that particular yes. uh, time that in your life. One. It was wonderful. I just I highly recommend others to to listeners to to pull that out of our archive. It was beautiful. So please go on. So here you are with him. Well, you know what he said was that. There are two paths, really. There's the path of our destiny, and there's the path of fate. And he said, when we pay attention to the dreams of our higher self, our higher self, our oversoul, that's what Ralph Waldo Emerson called it, the oversoul. This is the spiritual aspect of ourself that does not die. It continues traveling across eternity, sending in embodiments, all of us who are listening are in an embodiment that was sourced by an oversoul. And the oversoul lives in the subtle realms. It lives in the dream. And the subtle realms has a higher dimensional level woven into it, which could be called the causal. The causal and the subtle. The oversoul dreams, and it dreams all the time. And it communicates with its embodiments us by sending us dreams and ideas and visions and hunches and slips of the tongue that give the whole game away. When we pay attention to the dreams that are being sourced to us by our higher self, we're on the path of our destiny because this is what spirit wants. But many of us are totally preoccupied with our life in the physical world. We're preoccupied with things, with accomplishments, with rewards, with, with making money. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, so we may think that this is what we really want, but this is really what the body wants. This is what the physical body wants. So, Hank, when you're talking about these these dreams, these ideas, these hunches, these slip of the tongue, that requires a presence, a, a deep listening and noticing. We have to have an intention to hear these messages. They, they, otherwise, they just slip by in the night. They're transparent. They're very thin, like cellophane. Uh, that's what Thomas More uh, called them. He said, you've got to be very careful when you get these intuitive downloads because they pass by rather quickly. And most of us aren't paying attention, so we miss them. But these are actually guidelines which are provided to us by spirit. And the shaman's path is interesting because, you see, everything in our world is questionable. I think that's a, that's a given. You know, everything is negotiable. Everything is questionable. But when you pay attention to nature, everything in nature is true. And Mother Nature doesn't negotiate. She responds. I, I think that you, were, you, were, you, you said uh, at some point, point in your writing that that like humans in our endeavors they're very transitory they're transient they're they pass really quickly this is up this is down this is back this is forth but as you said nature there's there's a truth there yes there is there is this is where the truth lies and this is why i believe that the our hope for the future in a time of unprecedented change, when the climate is changing, the seas are beginning to rise. This is something I've, I've dealt with in every book I've written, uh, climate change and sea level rise, because it's very, very dangerous. And despite the well-funded efforts of the client deniers, it's happening and it's begun. So I think really our salvation lies in the re-enchantment of ourselves on the one hand, 
as well as the reenchantment of nature and our relationship with nature. You see, the, uh, the indigenous people believed that it was important to live close to the natural world, to respect nature's cycles and wishes and transitions and actions. And the mythology of such a culture is filled with the beings who live inside mountains and hills and inside waterways and trees and animals that speak. And the mythology of those cultures is tens of thousands of years old, and it supported them and kept their people alive and thriving for tens of thousands of years. Whereas the United States, for example, has only been in, in, in process for, what, about 240 years or so. And what have we done with those 240 years? Well, some people have observed that we've been at war for 222 of those years, which is really kind of striking when you think about it. Warfare. So we really haven't changed from the the military might of the Roman days. We go, you know, really right out of that as if nothing nothing has really changed. Nothing has really changed. And in fact, it could be observed that the popes are the emperors of Rome. The emperors never went away. You know, when Constantine was converted to Christianity in the 4th century, he then used the Roman military machine to force Christianity down the throats of everyone. And if you didn't convert, they killed you. It was very simple. And, of course, those people were the pagan people of Europe. The word pagan is derived from the Latin word pagus, P-A-G-U-S, the Pagus is the countryside as opposed to the towns and the cities. And the Romans declined their nouns. Pagus Pagani Paganum, Pagano Paganum. You know, this uh, Pagani means of the countryside. So the Pagani, or the pagans, were the people of the countryside. And they were the last holders of the ancient tribal religion of the European people. Uh, and, of course, the last holders were the women because the men were Christianized first because all the missionaries that Patrick sent out to the continent and elsewhere were all men traveling in groups of 12. So they Christianized the men first, and the women were the last holders of the old religion until, of course, uh, the unfortunate events that happened between roughly 1500 and 1650. And we'll go into that a little bit in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Hank Wesselman. He's the author of The Reenchantment, A Shamanic Path to a Life of Wonder. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Hank Wesselman. He's the author of The Reenchantment, A Shamanic Path to a Life of Wonder. And Hank, I'd, I'd love for us to talk here uh, at this last segment of the program, being of service, how we may be of service. And I'm reminded of a, a quote that you pulled out of another former guest of New Dimensions, Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen, just a wonderful healer herself. And uh, I'd, I'd love for you to share with us. Can you share with us the quote that you pulled? This is uh, actually from an article that was published in Shambhala Sun. Uh, Rachel Naomi Remen, uh, who's a physician, observed that being of service is quite different from helping and fixing. This is what she said. She said, when you help, you see life as weak. When you fix, you see life as broken. When you serve, you see life as whole. Service, she went on, rests on the basic premise that the nature of life is sacred, that life is a holy mystery that has an unknown purpose. When we serve, we know that we belong to life and to that purpose. From the perspective of service, we're all connected. All suffering is like my suffering, and all joy is like my joy. The impulse to serve emerges naturally from these perceptions. This is an interesting perception, don't you think? I definitely do. I, I'm somehow moved by it. What you know, that serving to to take it from oh, I'm going to help someone or I'm going to fix someone. They're broken. Uh, to I'm going to serve someone, and and it's really what we were talking about earlier in the program. What do we value? What is sacred to us, and and how may we serve that? Well, in this regard, uh, allow me to offer some wonderful words that were shared with me many years ago by Hale Makua, the this... uh, Hawaiian kahuna. Yeah. They were conveyed through our personal conversations during the last part of his life. This is what he said. Know that when you find love within its pure form, you're not confined, you're not finite. When you have found that pure love, you have found your eternity. And in this eternity, the wind of the present moment offers all lessons. It is at this moment that we must decide whether the illusion that creates judgment is to be seen as appropriate. It is now that we're faced with a choice, whether to judge or whether to appreciate, whether to ask for service or whether to be an agent of infinite service. If we're able to let our love free to ride the wind of spirit, we're always following the plan that we've laid out for our own soul's growth. Know that this is the destiny wherein we make decisions about the nature of everything, including all those about us and, of necessity, ourselves. Within the understanding that comes to us in response, we can then choose how we shall serve the mystery that created us and the all that is. That's a good one. That's a beautiful. It's just beautiful. And, and um, you know, I, I'm just thinking that, that also we have a kind of, there is an entelechy in us that, that has a God capacity 
that has a spiritual capacity, that has a longing for for spiritual truth. And, mm-hmm. and, and if we can uncover the busyness of our life, we can get to that. And when I say entelechy, I, I'm thinking of like a, the, 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 the acorn has the entelechy to become an oak tree. And so who, what is our oak tree-ness? Can, can you comment on that, Hank? Well, here's some thoughts. When we consciously form our thoughts into intentions devoted to goodness, and when we direct our intentions into appropriate actions accordingly, this allows us to live our life to our fullest capacity, existing for our own greatest good and for the greatest good of the whole. Holly Makua often said, somewhat wistfully, that it's only when we're in the positive polarity that we may connect with our spirit helpers and spirit teachers, with our ancestors, and with those higher organizing intelligences who will help us grow into our full and complete magnificence. This is what is meant by our re-enchantment, an experience that will contribute person by person to the revitalization of our culture and our world. It's in this way that we can experience the joy of being in service to each other and to the world soul, the Sophia. And in doing so, we may become what Makua called navigators of light. This is the path upon which we may choose to walk as we journey into the next cycle of ages and out toward the distant, dusty horizons of the unknown. And it's there, just there, that we often find ourselves in very good company. That's beautiful. And, and how, you know, it's serving the good, serving that, that goodness uh, as, as our judge, as, as what path should we take? Is this right and good? I remember years ago when um, someone asked the Dalai Lama, they said, um, I don't know why you go around happy all the time. You know, your, your people are being decimated. You probably never get back to Tibet. And he said, well, I don't know the future, he said, but I get up and I work for whatever I do. My actions are about um, what is good and right for me to do. <laughs> I always remembered him saying that. He said, so I, I, I don't know the future, but I do this because it's good and right for me to do. And he wasn't telling me my path. He wasn't saying, oh, this is, you should do this too. It wasn't that. He was giving us all a direction of getting up in the morning and saying, this morning, what is good and right for me to be doing today? How will I map out my day so that at the end of it I can say, well done, my best? Well, you know, it's it's my understanding. Somebody told me years ago that the Dalai Lama, who is a great soul, actually practices a form of, of, of spirituality called deity yoga. Deity yoga. It could be called deity mysticism. The shaman's path really begins with nature mysticism and progresses upward and into deity mysticism. Uh, in deity mysticism, the yogi, the practitioner creates a thought form of a powerful, benevolent spiritual being who embodies compassion, wisdom, virtue. 
And having constructed the thought form, the yogi then steps forward and merges with the thought form. And then they go throughout their entire day speaking like the deity, thinking like the deity, talking like the deity, acting like the deity. This is deity yoga. And I was told by somebody who knows that the uh, Dalai Lama practices this, and he merges with Avalokiteshvara, who is the Himalayan deity of compassion, like Kuan Yin in China or Kuan An in uh, Japan. And so, you know, for the listener out there, should you ever have the opportunity to meet with the Dalai Lama, it will be this benevolent spiritual being who looks into your soul through his eyes and who speaks to you on his voice. And that's not a small thing. That's not a small thing. It's a very powerful thing. And so that's what you're talking about when when we travel in a shamanic journey that we're, we're coming in contact with these emanations of compassion and goodness. And that's what we're going for. Yes. And when we come into relationship with them, uh, it allows them to constellate within us and through us. And the effects can be truly life-changing. And they want to do that. That's what they've come to do. And they've been waiting around, some of them for three or four hundred years, for us to wake up and rediscover them. And that's really what's happening in our time through those people who are walking the shamanic path once again. This is a path with heart. And I think it was Jack Cornfield. He's one of my heroes. He said once, I've never forgotten that he said, you know, when you come to the end of your life, there are only three questions that are important. Did you live your life fully? Did you love well? And did you walk your path with heart? And that's what it's all about. That's it. That's it. So uh, I, what can I say? I, I, what can I follow up on that one? Uh, that, <laughs> you know, we've, we've gone through the history. We've gone through, uh, you know, just really touch lightly on the many, many subjects that you have covered. You you also uh, tell a wonderful story in, in the book about your own contact in, uh, in Egypt with... Um, with Isis and with this beautiful emanation of this mother goddess that just uh, is so powerful. And there are so many, so many moments like that in this book that give us a flavor of what we're going for and what we could be in this upgrade of our cultural story that is so needed in this time. I, uh, Hank, I just want to thank you so much for being with us today on New Dimensions. My pleasure. It's a, pl- it's a privilege, really, to sit and talk with you. Let's do it more often. Oh, goody, goody. I like hearing that. I love that. Thank you so much. I've been here with Dr. Hank Wesselman, and his, his training is as a, uh, a scientist, as a paleoarchaeologist, and, uh, and also he's been working as a shamanist for decades now uh, in this path and helping us to find our path with him. And he's the author of The Reenchantment, A Shamanic Path to a Life of Wonder. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, sharedwisdom.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org.
I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3597. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Please visit us at newdimensions.org, where you can subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. That's newdimensions.org. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. Since 1973, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge of culture, the arts, science, health, psychology, spirituality, and a host of other fields. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions Archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.